I'm Pastor Jay. I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his first one. Great to see so many coming out to both our services. I hope you've enjoyed looking at our newer lobby. It's nearing completion out there. And the goal of it, as it's always been the goal, is to have a place for connection and community, which flows right into three words we use regularly for our vision, follow, connect, and make. And we believe that connection and community are a huge part of the Christian life and what we do. And the goal in redoing our lobby out there is just to make that even more accessible for us as a church family to be able to connect on a regular basis. Great having our choir back and just a joy to worship on a brand new Sabbath day. We're in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church as we continue. We're in about a four-month series in case you're visiting with us today. And today we come to an important chapter dealing with marriage and singleness. Paul is doing this by discussing the question, to marry or not to marry? Shakespeare might say, that is the question. To marry or not to marry? Actually, Paul's doing a lot more than just carrying on about those two subjects. He's talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. So a lot going on in one chapter here. No surprise that traditional marriage in Western culture, but even beyond Western culture, continues to be under attack. The roots of this attack in recent generation can go back even to the uh, passing of no-fault divorce in California under Ronald Reagan years ago, which was a direct undermine of the family, making divorce that much easier. The attack continued to ramp up through the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. I grew up in Southern California. Might explain a lot for some people, I don't know. But it is a, um, it's a strange land out there, beautiful land. Some extreme feminist critics then throughout the, uh, the decades have portrayed marriage as a domestic prison. You still see that kind of language. And then the ground changed again in 2015 with the Obergefell-Hodges decision of same-sex, legalizing same-sex marriage throughout the United States, something directly undermining what God has said in the Scriptures all the way back to Genesis. The attack on traditional marriage continues with the advent and unrolling of the LGBTQ revolution. And add to this the tsunami of pornography that floods our culture especially through the internet and is available around the world today, not only to men and women, but teenagers, boys and girls on both sides and affecting those younger and younger all the time. The results, ladies and gentlemen, young people, is that traditional marriage as designed by God continues to take hit after hit after hit. And it makes it that much more critical that the church offers a clear word about what God has said graciously, compassionately, but clearly saying what it is that God has said and designed for marriage. And one of the reasons for this is because marriage and the family are at the very core of a society and a culture. As marriage goes, as a family goes, so goes the culture. And as such, God's people desperately need to hear a clear word from God on a regular basis about what God's design and blueprints are for the family and for singleness. So in this letter, chapter 7, Paul is setting forth instructions to three different groups. God's instructions to the married, it comes in the first 16 verses, 
And then really what is his controlling principle for the whole chapter? Verses 17 and following, his instructions to all of us about contentment in whatever station we find ourselves. And then lastly, his instructions to singleness and to singles. So this is a very, very important chapter. First of all, what does God have to say to the married? What are his instructions to the married? And whether you're married currently or might be getting married, this is a very important section about what God intended and designed for marriage. Now, first of all, as we come into chapter 7, something you need to know. This is a new section in the letter. For six chapters, Paul has been dealing with specific sins, pretty much head on, number of sins. And now when you come to chapter 7, you'll notice his language, he's shifting. He's been dealing with sins, confronting them. Now he's going to shift to answering questions and addressing issues that they have brought up, the Corinthians have brought up in previous correspondence. You see that just in the first part of verse 1, where he says, Now, now for the matters you wrote about. So it's clear there's been a correspondence going on back and forth a bit. And then he brings up the first topic, clearly, that they have been writing about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So now for the matters you wrote about, let's take them one at a time, so to speak. And then he brings up the first one. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This verse has caused a lot of confusion. And there's two questions that need to be addressed as you interpret it. Anytime you come to a section of Scripture that's a little bit tricky, you've got to make sure you zero down and use the best tools you have to interpret that text. Well, there's two issues that need to be addressed here. Number one, this was not written in English. This was not written in Hungarian or Malay or Mandarin or Russian. This was written in Koine Greek. That was the lingua franca on the street. This was the street Greek of the day. That's the language the Holy Spirit chose to inspire the scriptures in the New Testament. And so the question is, number, no, number one question is, what is the correct translation of the Greek text in the first part of verse 1? Now, I don't normally spend a lot of time on this, but this one's critical. Here's some of the English translations. I grew up in the King James. And King James, and along with the New American Standard, said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's a little bit of an unusual translation. The New International Version, which I'm preaching out of here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the same thing that the English Standard Version says. The New Living Translation, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. Yesterday, once again, I've done this several times, I went back and just looked at Greek. The Greek on this verse is not difficult to translate, it's pretty easy. And it just says in the Greek text, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Meaning what? If you go back in first century culture, if you go back to the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this was common slang for sexual intercourse. It's used that way in Genesis, Ruth, and Proverbs in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. This is simply a slang phrase. It was a code phrase for sexual intercourse. So this was a way of talking about that. That's why it sounds strange to our ears. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. This is not speaking literally just touching her. There's clearly sexual connotations here. That's important to understand. Now, the second question is, why would Paul be saying this? Well, that brings us to the second issue. Who said these words? 
You might say, well, it looks like Paul said them. Well, not necessarily. Some have argued that this is Paul's opinion. So for the matters you wrote about, I'm telling you, number one, no man should ever touch a woman in a sexual way. As if Paul is arguing for celibacy right out of the chute. As you look at it a little bit closer, just stare at that phrase for a second. It looks like, and I think so, and a number of New Testament commentators will tell you, it looks like what Paul's doing here is he's starting then to quote information or material from their correspondence. In other words, it looks like he's quoting from one of their questions, something like this. Now for the matters you wrote about, you've brought up the following issues. Question number one, and I'm paraphrasing what the Corinthians are asking, but I think this is exactly what they're asking. In light of all of the sexual immorality and impurity around us, and that's an understatement for that area, Corinth was known for being notoriously indulgent in sexual issues. In light of all that going on around us, isn't it better to, and safer just to stay celibate? Isn't celibacy, in fact, a higher calling? There's hints of that in this letter as he talks about some of the issues they were believing. There's hints here where Paul is actually combating this thought that celibacy is a, is a higher calling. It certainly is a calling. We'll talk about that. And isn't it better just to abstain altogether and just stay celibate? And so the problem is Paul doesn't agree with this. So if you take it that way, and I think that's exactly what's being done here. Now for the matters you wrote about. Number one, you're asking, is it okay for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? I think that's exactly what the text is saying. Paul does not agree. He will talk about the high calling of celibacy. He will talk about the high calling of marriage. But he doesn't place one over the other. He takes the opportunity here to endorse marriage up front including the sexual relationship in marriage, as a valid choice before God. In fact, according to the Bible, marriage isn't just a choice. If we enter marriage, the Bible is very clear, it's a covenant. You say, well, what's the difference between that and a promise or a commitment? A covenant is a sacred commitment and promise made before God that has consequences and obligations. Malachi, the last book in our English Bible, says marriage is a covenant and that means it has very sacred obligations. It, by the way, it helps answer a question that comes up a lot. Tell me if you've heard this. I'm sure you have. Why do I need a piece of paper to live with somebody? You ever heard that? That's a common objection to marriage in our culture. You know why you need a piece of paper to live with somebody legally? Or even if it's not legal, why you need it to be married? Because a marriage license is not just a declaration of your present love for somebody. In fact, that's really not what it is. A marriage certificate and a public marriage and exchanging of vows isn't just a declaration of your present love. It is a commitment to your future love and your future commitment to that person. That's the difference. It's not just saying, hey, I think you're the greatest thing, babe, today. I want to get married with you. It's saying no matter what happens... Health, non-health, all the way till death, I am committed to you. And so marriage vows are designed to be a commitment to future commitment. They are designed to say, I am staying with you no matter what. That is why, quote, a piece of paper is such a big deal. That brings us to God's instructions to the married. 
in verses 1 to 16, and just to be clear, as kindly as we can say this, and I think this needs to be said more and more in our present day, the only definition of marriage God recognizes is that between a man and a woman. Cultures change, cultures come and go, legislatures change, presidents change, senates change, kings and queens change. Government is ordained by God, government is very important, unless that government oversteps its boundaries and begins to say things and decree things that God has not said. The Bible is very clear, starting in Genesis, all the way through, that marriage, the only thing God recognizes as a legitimate marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the complete understructure of any time you read about marriage in the Bible. That is the underlying assumption. And so just to say that, and so now he talks about God's instructions for the married, starting in verse 2. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to the wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am this stage, Paul was most likely single. There is some indication he may have been married at some point. We don't know for sure. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that gift. So the first thing Paul discusses here are God's instructions for sexual relations within marriage. And his instructions right up front is if we are married, sexual relations are to be a regular part of our married life. This is a command from God. God. I've said this before, but I'll say it because I think it's very applicable. It's also uh, a fun thing to do. But when, I'm, when we're doing premarital counseling, Becky right now and I are doing premarital counseling with a couple of couples. All the way through that premarital counseling, one of the requirements of our church and of our premarital policy and of each pastor as we do this is that we will not marry anybody who, A, not male and female, and B, are not abstinent. And so sometimes we either have to say, you know, you need to stay abstinent if you've been sexually active. You can't be living together. And so all the way through premarital counseling, Becky and I are asking them each time we meet, how's it going? Are you maintaining the boundaries you need to? It gets harder as you get closer to marriage and all that. Thou shall not. Thou shall not. We pray with them. We pray for them. We always are coaching, challenging them to stay sexually pure. What a gift it is to give to, somebody, to yourself before marriage. But then often, and almost always uh, at the wedding reception, Becky and I will take the couple aside and we will bid them farewell and then we will remind them, you know, it's been thou shalt not all the way through, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now it's thou shalt and thou shalt regularly. Oh, and they both kind of look down. <laughs> but we remind them this is a gift from God. It is a glorious gift from God in the confines of a heterosexual marriage. It is designed and it's not just optional, it is mandatory now. Mandatory because that's the way God created it. This is something God dreamed up. And then he gives three things that have to hold true if there's going to be 
and, and, and abstaining from sexual relations in a marriage. All th- these, all three need to hold true. In, in verse 5a, can abstain only if both have consented. Sexual relations should never be used as a weapon in a marriage, ever. B, it has to be serious enough, 5b, to require prayer. And C, 5c, it's to only be temporary, unless you are in a situation where there's illness or some other constriction. Other than that, it's to be an ongoing thing. Now, verses 8 and 9, Paul gives instructions to the unmarried. And he's going to come back to this more so, to the unmarried or to widows or widowers. And widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Interesting, in some cultures, that's a given. Um, I've had the privilege to be in India several times. In India, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, or Christian, it is strong in the culture that if you lose your spouse, that's it. You're not to get remarried. I, just, I was surprised how strong that sentiment is among the Hindu community and the Muslim community and even the Christian community. But here Paul urges those who are perhaps widowed or widowed, considered staying single. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion or burn with lust. Next, Paul discusses what God says about separation, divorce, and remarriage. I was talking about this passage yesterday with my mother. She said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I told her, she said, oi, there's a lot in that chapter. (laughs) I said, yes, there is. So Paul gives counsel to three specific situations here. It is important to take special note of these. Young people especially, please be looking at what God says here. Situation number one, to marriage is in trouble. What does God say? Well, he says it in verses 10 and 11. He's very clear. To the married. Don't you like how just straightforward God's word is here? Very practical. To the married, I give this command. Now, notice the text, and this is in the Greek text, not I but the Lord. What he means there is he's quoting from Jesus in the Gospels to a principal Jesus. That's when he says the Lord. Not, I'm not coming up with this. I'm just paraphrasing or saying something or repeating something Jesus said in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 where you'll find this. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Must not divorce his wife. That's his counsel to the married. It goes back to what God says in Malachi. It goes back to what he says in Genesis. Let no one separate. Malachi, God says, I hate divorce because it breaks the sacred covenant and it does all sorts of damaging things. Second piece of advice he gives to a situation here, to Christians married to non-Christians who find themselves for whatever. Now, there's different ways Christians end up married non-Christians. Sometimes two unbelievers marry and one will get saved. That happens. Sometimes two people will be married and they're both Christians, and then one ends up apparently had a, a, a false conversion and they find themselves such. So there's, there's different ways you can find yourself married to an unbeliever. We call this a spiritual single. But whatever the circumstance, you know, whether you married an unbel- two unbelievers married or you married that, or whether a believer and an unbeliever married, or, or, or whether one of them defected, if you find yourself as a Christian married to an unbeliever, 
Then here's what God says, verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now again, he flips this around. What he means this time is he's not quoting directly from Jesus, but this is still scripture. To the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So there's your instructions from God, a Christian married to a non-Christian. God's instructions here, the true Christian is not to walk out on their marriage even if they find themselves married to an unbeliever. Third set of instructions to a very specific situation, if a non-Christian spouse leaves the marriage with a believer, and here Paul says, Divorce and remarriage are allowed for desertion. He says it in verse 15. If the unbeliever leaves, meaning leaves the believer, abandons the marriage, exits, takes takes the off-ramp and they're done, reconciliation is no longer possible, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances, God has called us to live in peace. And this is where divorce and remarriage are allowed. We should note divorce and remarriage are also allowed by Jesus for sexual sin, porneia, in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. And again, porneia is a broad word for sexual sin, covering heterosexual sin and homosexual sins. And it's interesting when you go look at church confessions over the years, church confessions are clear, like the Westminster Confession, which is a very good confession back in the 1640s, reinforces these two biblical allowances for divorce and remarriage. Here's the language, a little bit archaic and outdated, but nonetheless very clear. Westminster Confession on when divorce and remarriage are allowed. Nothing but adultery or willful desertion is such sufficient cause for dissolving the bond of marriage. So those are the only two conditions allowing for divorce in the Bible. That's it. Porneia, some form of sexual sin, or desertion. An unbeliever abandons the marriage, is gone, and there's no reconciliation possible. Now, let me turn this around and go at it from a slightly different perspective because Paul does bring up the fact, well, what if your spouse dies? So let me put it this way. According to the Bible, once we are married and have taken sacred vows before the Lord and before people, there are only three justifications for getting remarried. So let me, let me state it this way, just so we're clear. So once you're married, and again, it doesn't matter if the marriage is between two Christians or not, or Hindus or Buddhists, marriage is marriage before God. That's sometimes a misnomer. Once, once we're married, there's only three justifications for ever getting remarried. They are, if a genuine Christian who's married to an unbeliever, is abandoned by them. In fact, Paul brings this up. Talk about it. Verse 29, uh, 39. No, hold, 39 is if, you, if, if your spouse dies. So let me, I'll, I'll do that one. Woman is no longer bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone else she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So, Number one, let's go back and renumber these. Number one is if the person dies. Number two is if 
an unbeliever abandons a believer, that's in verse 15. Or number three, if there's been sexual sin, porneia. And that does, by the way, that does not mandate divorce. It just simply allows it. So once again, there's only three reasons biblically why you can get remarried. Your spouse has died, or there's been desertion, or there's been sexual sin. Those are the only three allowances in the Bible justifying remarriage. Now, in popular Christian literature over the last several decades, I've noticed another reason popping up, and that is this. I've read in several popular level Christian books, well, if you were divorced before you became a Christian, then it's okay. The problem is that's nowhere found in the Bible. And that's an argument in recent days. The only three allowances in the Bible for getting divorced and getting remarried, or getting remarried, period, is that one, there's been porneia, two, there's been desertion, or thirdly, as I said in verse 39, your spouse has died. Other than that, we are in the covenant of holy marriage. And that's why taking vows, hear this, is so serious. It's not just a light thing to take vows in front of people, in front of God. God views that as binding. And to walk out on that invites discipline and even judgment. Nextly, God's instructions to all of us. And here you come to the controlling principle of the whole passage. And a lot of people miss this, and we know this is the controlling principle of the passage because it's repeated three times in a very short section here. In verses 17, look down through verse 24, you have the controlling principle, which is what? I call it the contentment principle, the contentment principle, that we are called to be content in whatever situation God has called us to, whatever our circumstances, whether in marriage or otherwise, God calls us to be content. He repeats this in verse 17, in verse 20, and verse 24. So verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So Paul's not just giving this to this small church. This is God's rule for all churches. So first of all, there's that. Now verse 20, he repeats it again. Each person should remain in the situation in which God called them. There it is again. But to make the point even clearer, verse 24, he repeats it again. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. You see that? Three times. The contentment principle. And then Paul uses two illustrations to back up the contentment principle. He mentions in this section circumcision, and then he go back up to verse 18. He mentions circumcision, and then he also mentions in this section slavery. Now, when you hear the word slavery in Western culture, especially in America or Britain or Brazil, everyone's attention immediately goes to the African slave trade, which was hideous and onious, and everyone agrees was evil. The problem when you hear the word slavery is slavery in all cultures is not identical. In first century Roman culture, it was not the African slave trade. Let me give you just a couple differences. Slaves in first century Roman culture were a little bit more like a bond servant. You say, what's that? A little more like an indentured servant. That doesn't mean every single one was, but as a whole, it looked a lot more like that than what we are familiar with with chattel slavery. 
Slavery was often voluntary servanthood, bond servant or indentured servitude in that culture was often voluntary. And it even frequently included wages. There were many times when you were paid wages when you were done. Roman slavery was not race-based either. It was not race-based. And slaves often held similar status to those they worked for. In fact, it was said by some that when you walk down the street, you couldn't tell the difference between owner and slave or between employer and those who worked for them. And it was not even uncommon to sell yourself into that situation to gain Roman citizenship. So there are a number of differences. Paul's point is not defending indentured servitude or slavery back then. His point is, wherever God has put you, we are to find a contentment there. Circumcision, non-circumcision, slavery, non-slavery, married or unmarried. These are some of the illustrations. His point is trusting in God's providence that God is good and that whatever circumstances you may find yourself in currently, wherever I find myself, I'm not to be constantly agitated and restless and always looking for greener pastures. I'm to understand God is good, God can be trusted, and I need to be content. Now, it's interesting, Paul doesn't say it's wrong to try to better our circumstances. He says so right in verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So if God allows a change, we can accept that providentially, but if He doesn't, we're to be content. We're to be content. We talked last week about how many sit in Bible teaching churches and are stuck in years-long or decades-long patterns of bitterness towards their circumstances. And friends, that's because we don't have a proper view of who God is. We don't have a proper view of His providence and that He's good all the time. And when we murmur, when we get bitter, when we complain, when we're constantly fighting God, it's a sign that we are not submitting to His gracious, loving will for our lives. Now, the last thing here, God's instructions to singles, verses 25 to 40. God's specific target audience in this last section are those who are never married. So if you look at verse 25, now about virgins. So he has talked in principle to those who are widowed or widowers or those who are divorced. Here he has in mind those who have never married, although everything he says here would apply to anyone who's single, whether single or single again, this would apply. And he cites at least two advantages to being single. Now, here's what this means. Being single is a very important calling in the kingdom of God. You may find yourself right now single for whatever reason. Being single is a high and holy calling that we need to embrace, needs to be announced in the church even. Two advantages to being single, whether you're single or single again, or never been married. Number one, verse 28, singles often have often have fewer personal difficulties and entanglements. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. So again, he's holding marriage up as a lofty, holy calling. But if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's holding up celibacy and singleness also as a high and holy calling. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. 
Now, those of us who are married, especially being a good marriage, you can testify that marriage is a wonderful institution. I love being married to my bride. I know I'm married uphill. And when I look at Becky Joy, she's evidence of God's love in my life, easily. Having said that, anytime you get married, certain cherished freedoms exit the relationship. You're no longer accountable only to yourself and God. Your time is no longer just yours. You give up some precious freedoms in Western culture. Then you add children into the situation. And then emerging of finances. And pretty soon, there's, you know, there, there are layers of duties that are not upon a single person. That's all Paul is saying. Singles often have more time. They have less personal difficulties and entanglements. Secondly, verses 32 to 35, singles have more spare time for spiritual pursuits. Verses 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, as it should be. I heard Chuck Swindoll a long time ago said, when you, if you, when you get married, you married a distraction by design. That's not a negative statement. It's not a negative statement. It's a positive statement, but it's just, it's just a fact. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. So wives, same thing. If you get married, you've married a distraction by design. How she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. That's, that's where we go when we see something God has said. We immediately go to the negative, oh, this is a restriction. God's commands are not designed that way. They're designed, if they are a restriction, they're designed for our good and our glory and our joy. But that you may live in a right way in, an und in undivided attention and devotion to the Lord. Now the problem is that many singles, even Christian singles, don't choose to use their extra time doing things for the Lord, getting involved in their church more, discipling more. Some do, but some don't. Some become either so preoccupied on getting a mate, that's all they think about. Or they spend their time doing all kinds of other selfish pursuits and foolish things. They spend all their time on video games and all their time doing whatever they want. And they don't use some of that extra time strategically to invest in the local church, invest in discipling others in ways that married people could never do. We frankly could use some more singles around here to do things that we need. And you could have the freedom that a married person wouldn't, and the spontaneity married person doesn't necessarily have. So here's God's word to singles. Whether you're single by choice or by not choice, whether you're divorced, widowed, or never married, while, while, while it can be a challenging, productive time and can be a painful, sorrowful time, depending on if you lost a spouse or divorce, being single in God's counsel, it all depends on your view of God's providence. Is he good? Is he in full control of your relationship? Is he in full control of your life? Is he full control of every detail of your life? And is he good? Is he all wise? Is he all knowing? And if he is, then you're in your circumstances due to God's providence and use your singleness as an opportunity to do more investment in the kingdom of God. 
And here's one other reality that most married people don't think about. Most of us who are married, if we don't die first, we're going to be single. As C.S. Lewis said, when you get married, you are making a covenant that most likely one of you is going to be left behind. And as Becky and I walk through cemeteries, as I share regularly, it's very sobering to see husband and wife tombstones, graves. It's very common for one to be left 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 and 30 years after the other one has died. So singleness is a season that everybody's in off and on, perhaps through most of their life. What is our summons this morning? Verse 17. The controlling principle of this whole chapter. That's critical. That's what a lot of people miss. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. That is a whole sermon on the providence of God. Every person should live in the situation which God has assigned to them. Whatever your circumstances this morning, young person, old person, anybody in between, God has assigned that to you as a loving, benevolent deity. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So the principle is trusting in God's contentment. And so as I asked last week, is there any chance you might be bitter this morning? Churches, again, are filled with people who sit every week, listen to sermons, but are seething in bitterness. And it's one of the hardest sins to admit to. It's one of the hardest sins to let go of. If God has called you to be single, whether you're in a season of joy or difficulty, embrace it. Stay sexually pure, seek the Lord, and ask God, how can I use my current circumstances to invest more time in kingdom things? If God's called you to be married, embrace it, enjoy it, and give everything you can to meeting the needs of your partner. That's what God has called us to. Either way, the true Christian, those who have turned to Christ, repented and believed, can take comfort that God is all-powerful, that he is all wise, and that he is all knowing, and that he is good all the time. And that is the great hope of the Christian world view. Amen? That's the total difference between us and a world that so desperately needs a message of hope. Lord, we thank you for Paul in his 13 letters, but especially this chapter. We thank you for a chapter that is so practical for our lives. This chapter touches everybody in very candid ways, Lord. I mean, it touches some of the deepest aspects of who we are as human beings, our sexuality, our relationships, marriage and singleness. May we hear a clear word from you this morning. If there are adjustments that need to be made, oh God, help us to make those adjustments. But as the controlling principle here says, Father, help us to find contentment in whatever situation you have called us. We know that's your will, so we pray for the joy that will accompany that. In Jesus' good name, amen.